Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Worries about global economic growth and if a soft landing by the Federal Reserve is possible remains top of mind with market watchers. So what should investors keep an eye on in the weeks ahead? We're joined by Denise Chisholm, Director of Quantitative Market Strategy on today's show. With host Pamela Ritchie, today Denise shares that the U.S. is in a much better position than the rest of the world because interest rates will likely be high enough to be able to generate some sort of stimulus and demand. Also, that it is likely inflation will begin to decelerate more quickly at some point over the next six months. Additionally, Denise provides an update on her top and bottom sectors right now, also noting that the risk-reward is rapidly shifting for energy stocks. This podcast was recorded on September 29th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. You know, I'm very curious what you think as sort of a case study, uh, if it's possible to pull out and look at it that way, of what's going on in the UK, what has happened from the fiscal side, the it looks like a forced reaction by the BOE, by the central bank, and how this kind of fits into what we are watching globally. Fiscal made a big move. Markets didn't like it. Right. No, and I think that that's important to understand when you think about recessions, whenever the next recession is, considering we're in, right, in one right now, potentially, um, all of that with how fiscal and monetary fit. So there's certainly a narrative in the market that'll say every time the federal hikes interest rates, something breaks, and now we saw that out of the Bank of England. Um, maybe not exactly, although certainly higher rates from the U.S. put pressure on the Bank of England. But I think that the, the bigger issue was the fiscal package potentially going through with, let's call it the bond vigilantes being back and saying essentially no mas, right? So this is a hard line. Now, the Bank of England did what the central bank is supposed to do, which is backstop any counterparty risk because you saw basically unfunded or underfunded pension liabilities and the swaps associated with that potentially being an issue as margin calls arose. So the Bank of England did exactly what it should do in terms of stop that counterparty risk and act as the lender of of last resort. But I think it puts all economies on watch of whatever was the flip of the last cycle, where really monetary policy wasn't particularly effective because interest rates were already so low, right? Remember, we were talking about Operation Twist. I mean, it was really all on fiscal. And now I think as we move forward, I think that there is going to be less ability for economies to protect against the downturn via fiscal because the market will not let you potentially, and that's what we're seeing out of the UK, where really it's all going to be on monetary policy from the sense that if you were able to get interest rates high enough, then you will have interest rates to be able to cut. And I think that that puts the US and actually what I would say in a slightly contrarian fashion in a much better position than the rest of the world because interest rates will likely be high enough to be able to generate some sort of stimulus and and demand. 
ultimately if they need to be cut in the case of recession or, or whatever that is Correct. whenever we get there, even though it feels pretty painful for many in the markets to, right. to feel this right now. Um, one of the questions really is about how well that's working, how well it is not just chasing inflation, but actually going to bring inflation down. And you know, and therefore, what's next? I mean, we're pretty far along. How, how do you see inflation reacting at this point? Right. Look, it's, it's tough because inflation is in some ways a lagging indicator. Um, and the Fed's certainly, you know, standing up on the brakes right now in terms of their interest rate hikes. And that creates a little bit of a, a tension between are, are you watching a lagging indicator or not? But I think when I look, at least, I don't know what the Federal Reserve is going to do, but when I look at the leading indicators to inflation in the commodity complex, they're coming down quite quickly. And when I look at the leading indicators in terms of what rate impact has, what we're seeing in the U.S. mortgage market with mortgage rates around seven now, mm. there's a whole lot of headwinds coming for inflation. The, the, the when exactly, I don't know. And I, I, I'm certainly, I understand the argument that service inflation is a little bit stickier because of wages. But that said, goods inflation is still 50% of the core PCE deflator. Now, I think when you say goods, are we basically talking about energy? Energy is the corollary to almost, I don't want to say all goods inflation, but it's such right. a strong predictor of that. Like even when we think about goods of our laptop, right, food has an input to that. A lot of goods in the United States have that as an input. So in some ways, when we consider pass-through pricing and like wage price spirals, I always think of it when I look through history as like an energy inflation spiral. And energy is the giver to that stickiness at times, even in the 70s. And I think that we're seeing some of that now, which is why I think that it's been an important decline to watch in gasoline prices and even in natural gas in the United States now being down. Those are significant drivers of future inflation because they control that goods component. So in some ways, like the, the longer this has gone on, the more, at least from a probability perspective, the headwinds have built, and the more it could be that inflation comes down that backside faster. Again, I don't know when, but at some point over the next six months, if the, like the headwinds remain where they are from the commodity complex, I think that there's a, a bigger chance that inflation decelerates quicker than many investors expect. So so you'll tell us, because there's a couple of charts that are obviously pointing to exactly what you're saying here. Yes. But I just, I'll just carry on because we are, I mean, you're hearing all kinds of voices on, you know, we haven't seen the last of energy prices being super high. There's a supply issue. And, you know, there's lots of different stories that fit with that. And OPEC's certainly uh, one of the biggest stories within it. But I mean, what do you say to all that? The supply side says there's lots of crunch ahead. Yeah, so again, I'll go with history and historical data and demand is falling and falling rapidly, certainly falling and contracting in Europe and falling in the United States as well from an industrial production perspective, right? So it's just a matter of you know how long the contraction is going to be. In that contractionary environment, you can bet on crude going up, that happens about 30% of the time. So I don't think in my mind, based on demand slowing, your base case should be a rising commodity. Now, from a supply perspective, certainly we have other issues, you know, with Russia specifically, Russia and Ukraine. But outside that, when you rely on OPEC or anything else, I see the opposite when you look historically. So remember like the pinch point chart, if you can visualize it, 
of what really the lack of supply did in let's call it the aughts. The concern was not that inventories were too low. The concern and what drove crude from let's call it 25 to 75 to 150 was that there was no excess capacity. Everybody was fully producing every barrel they could. And now with cuts in production, you're seeing the exact opposite. So if you like have a mathematical back test of it, what you'll find is that excess capacity is 10 times more important to future price than inventory. Right, and so you clear inventory. On the, and where are we on the excess capacity? Well, every time they cut, there's more, right? <laughs> and every time the US doesn't produce as much as they did, they, you have more because there is that additional capacity that can come on. And that's the tricky part about the commodity market is it looks through that to know a cap. It's not being fooled by, well, you're not producing now, so it'll be fine. Yes, but if the price rises to X, $5, you're gonna be right there, aren't you? Yes, we know that. We know that you'll be right there. So that's why excess capacity is important. And that's why even when you backtest, you know, OPEC cutting over any six month time horizon, crude oil still tends to go down, not up. And it's because they end up chasing demand and demand ends up being the more important factor. So we're now in a situation where I think, look, my base case was early on, certainly commodities higher rather than lower. Then it was, hmm, I think you care less about the commodity than you think because energy relative valuation is so strong. And now we're in a situation where, look, I think that the energy valuation story has played out potentially and the commodity is more likely to be weak rather than strong. So it's a complete flip of what we talked about really two and a half years ago. It is so completely fascinating. So we talked, you taught us basically, uh, a lot about where energy, the the stocks themselves, the equities on valuation fit in the overall investment landscape. How have we, have we sort of blown through that valuation story? Where does it sit? I think we have in the sense, again, I sort of look at historical probabilities and how disconnected they were. Um, and what you've seen now is something, look, in some ways that we as investors were betting on. The stocks were cheap enough to look through any commodity price declines because we knew that the energy complex was still basically making money. So now if we look where we are, so the stocks have outperformed over the last nine months, and I think this isn't as of today, but over the last nine months, roughly by 40%, right? Outperformed by 40%. And the commodity is now down in that time span. So we can look back through history and say, okay, all right, now we have this massive disconnect. How often does this happen? And you say, not often, right? It's only been this extended like 5% of the time historically. And you say, well, what happens after that? And it's, you know, usually the stocks underperform 70% of the time, right? So they only have 30% odds. And you say, does valuation still save you? And no, it does not. It does wow. not increase your odds. Meaning that the way I read history is that, look, valuation provides support to an extent. And we have sort of gra like graduated out of the extent to which valuation can be supportive in this disconnect. So I think that you know the risk reward is rapidly shifting for energy stocks, even if, like, I think we could be in for the reverse, where, look, I think the commodity could go up from here for certain. I mean, it's come down a lot. You could rise a little. And the stocks underperform so because wide. that disconnect is so wide. So you can see the exact flip of what we just had happen. And at least you have to be open-minded from an investment perspective for something like that to happen. Uh, and I think that that's what makes the risk reward, let's call it neutral to slightly negative at this point. So 
energy is the good sides of side of things. We we certainly talk about the services side of things and and the wage story within, which is a, a huge piece of whether wages are in fact chasing inflation if they need to. This is what lots of CEOs are thinking about. To what extent do they need to raise wages to face inflation? Where does this fit in? Yeah. So in some ways, like the the narrative sometimes makes my head hurt. Because I think that there's a narrative around wages, you know, wage growth is essentially a bad thing because it's going to make the Fed hike interest rates more and it's sticky and it's creating sticky, sticky service inflation. Honestly, when I look at the data associated with that, I don't see that as clearly. So I like to focus on what I think has clear probabilities. And it's not wages or inflation by themselves, but it's the interlay between the two, meaning it's real wages and salaries that matter for the U.S. consumer and matter for that existential, potentially downside risk. And here, I think you are seeing a turn, right? Everything is slowing. GDP is slowing. Industrial production is slowing. Wage growth is slowing. Inflation is slowing. The question is, what slows faster of wages or inflation? If inflation slows faster than wages, you have real wage inflection. And this has been the problem area for the market really for the last year and a half is that we've had negative wage growth. Look, that hasn't been a huge problem for the U.S. consumer because they had access to credit and access to savings. But if you now look at the best leading edge of that, which is surveys, the NFIB survey shows you that the percentage of small businesses intending to raise wages minus the percentage of surveys intending to raise prices, that's a proxy for real wage growth and it does proxy out, had a huge inflection, right? Top decile inflection higher. This potentially takes, you know, the foot off the throat of the U.S. consumer. Again, back to, look, I don't know what's, you know, let's not debate wage strength being a good or a bad thing when I can't prove it in historical data. Same thing with inflation. Sometimes we've talked about that sweet spot. Let's go back to what we can empirically prove. Empirically proving this inflection has been historically a monotonic good thing to the market. For every quartile, this improves. You have higher forward odds of a market advance, higher average returns. When you're in the top 5%, which is where we are now, you have 17% you know, increase in the stock market. I think that that's 100% odds. If it's not, it's in the high 90s, and there's only one instance when it didn't work. Um, so I think that this is potentially the important driver that we might be missing focusing on all those lagging indicators. Okay, okay, okay. All right, we have to catch up here. Your brain works faster than mine for sure. Maybe others, I don't know. Um, uh, right, sweet spot. Can we go back to that? What is the sweet spot yeah. for, for inflation? Because we're, well, where are we? How close are we? Yeah, so we're close. So when, again, when everybody's inflation differently, I don't like to think of year-on-year -year inflation because it tends not to be predictive. I, pro I like to think of the run rate of inflation. So the core PCE deflator, um, that is running around 4%. So think of it mathematically this way. So the year-on-year -year rate, it's almost like a very visible decline to 4%. So 4%, getting to 4% is very clear um, right. because that is our current run rate. Again, it's been stickier than I think people would like, and we haven't seen a massive deceleration from that 4, but it's around 4 nonetheless, which is a step function lower than what we saw in the 70s. FYI. I don't find those comparisons uh, particularly compelling when I look at the overall inflation data. Anyway, so when you think about that level of inflation and the headwinds we see coming for it, um, the sweet spot historically for stocks to advance, and even for, I got it, probably for the economy, but for stocks to advance is between three and a half and five. 
So anything higher than five has been below average trends historically. And anything less than three and a half because of that deflation risk, you do have a downside skew. I think people forget that. Remember, you know, you need a little inflation for the economy to work. And that's why it's been three and a half to five. So look, I mean, the part that I struggle with too is the Fed has, you know, created this guidepost of two, um, really out of thin air in 2016. And they did it when inflation was two. Right. In some ways, they did it for the opposite reason as they're doing it now, which is, hey, we'll make sure that inflation gets to two because everybody was worried about deflation risk. We're going to get up to two. Yeah. Right. We're going to let it get to two. Oh, thank goodness. Um, but now you're seeing sort of the opposite, and they, they dug in a little bit on their rhetoric. But what you see historically is the U.S. economy has functioned fine from three and a half to five, uh, as has the stock market functioned fine from three and a half to five. And the problem with, I think, going with, you know, okay, we'll give the Fed its due and say they'll, they'll stick with their rhetoric, is what I find when I look back in history is Federal Reserve policy, whether it's market interest rates or have regulations from a state perspective that, that shift and control some portion of the interest rate, all of that changes through time, right? The Federal Reserve target rate didn't yeah. exist until 1994. And when I backtest interest rates, right, I got to integrate the discount rate. I got to integrate all kinds of interest rates because they change all the time. So my concern again, right? I mean, they could exactly. change again. Aren't they going to come? They're coming. It's only a year away or something. Is it a year and a half? Right. When right. It comes up for a new decision and maybe they'll make it three. They'll, boom. There we are. We're at exactly. three already. Exactly. And it might even be, again, we, we could get a deflationary impulse from goods that takes the overall CPI down to something like in the twos, right? Maybe temporarily. Um, so it, I, I just think that there are too many iterations that, that don't make, that make that not something that I necessarily want to bet on as an investor. It makes me nervous to bet on things that are very and, changeable. And in any case, if that is coming down and wages have, have gotten up to X level. And you'll tell us where we are in terms of wage inflation and the real wages is still obviously that main story, but it, it'll feel like we have more money to spend. Right, right. You won't, you won't see it in consumer confidence because inflation tends to outweigh that. Oh, but consumer won't confidence, feel it, but we will have it. You will have it. You just won't report that you have it. <laughs> I'm still unhappy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just less quietly at here, though. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Housing. I want to come back to housing. You mentioned housing, but yeah. I feel like we need to kind of swing back to that. Um, so we just haven't felt the real pain yet. Is this the story? Eventually? That's definitely true. I mean, it, again, inflation is a lagging indicator and Fed, the interest rate hikes are a lagging indicator. So really, when I say you know, they, they've been coming great guns for inflation. The place that's ground zero for that fight is the U.S. housing market. And there is a lag, right? Because we have, I think, 80% of our mortgages are fixed, right? Uh, and yeah. even the ones Which that are different in Canada. We have a lot of, yeah, we have lots of adjustable. So yes, you have variables, as does the UK. So globally, there's a, a quicker reaction um, to prices where you're going to see it lagged in the United States. But, you know, five and a half percent rate on your mortgage was one thing. It's close to seven now in the U.S. I mean, even the move that we had seen before that inflection from five and a half to seven, you had zero percent historical odds of a further appreciation in shelter costs over a three, six, nine or 12 month basis. Right. So this is in some ways mathematically when people talk about service inflation, this is 
the map that drives service inflation, specifically in the CPI, to a lesser effect, the PCE deflator. So it's, it's a lower weight. It's 40% in the CPI. It's only 20% in the PCE deflator. But that shelter cost has a big lag in there. And really, that's what, what's coming for that. And I think that you know what we're seeing now is I think that your base case needs to be certainly in select areas, price declines, and potentially even a price decline on a nationwide basis. Because what you have now is a first-time home buyer that has, you know, is facing the least affordable house. in I don't want to say in history, because I'd have to actually go back after the fight and do some math around it. But it's probably pretty close from a first-time home, home buyer issue right now. So what's going to happen? Well, there's going to be an equilibrium. It's going to correct. What can correct? Mortgage rates stay where they are, or let's say they don't go down a meaningful amount. And they'll go down a little because spreads can, can come in. But what you can see is prices are going to correct, right? The question is, in the U.S. economy, is will, there, will this be a problem for, for a, like, like we saw in the great financial crisis? And the answer the is, economy. I think, yeah. or the economy. And the answer is likely no. So yes, it will be a net worth contraction off some of the highest net worth levels in history, even after the stock market decline, right? And net worth doesn't always translate into spending. It's like three to five cents on the dollar is I think what some studies say. So not really there. And I think more importantly, home equity is just so much higher relative to prior periods where you're not, you're just not going to get the glut of supply that you saw in the financial crisis. Right. And that lack of glut of supply will hold prices higher. Right. It doesn't mean that they'll go up, but will hold prices higher than a systematic decline that creates a real problem or a real spiral for net worth and for spending and other things. So I think that this is going to take some time to work out in the U.S. housing market. But I think time will it will take time, but it will work itself out via price. OK, fascinating. So you've. You've mentioned consumer discretionary and you've mentioned it before over the medium um, term, sort of next one to three years. Where do you see pockets of opportunity? I'm guessing the consumer discretionary is one. Are there others? Yes. So I'm going to say I'm going to lead with the conclusion and then I'm going to tell you a big preamble about it. Consumer discretionary and financials. And so I just did a podcast on this. So I would say, if I say this too quickly, you can go back once we release it and, and listen to it. Because what I have been struck by, even in the recent market decline, and look, I study data every day. Like literally, that's what I do every day. I look at data. And I have been shocked by how important relative valuation has been versus the overall economy. So I know we want to all get caught up in macro, but I did an interview recently with, a, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, um, on the quality factor. And look, the quality factor has been the darling factor to be exposed to over the last 15 years. And it has 70 to 80% odds of outperforming in when you're flowing, when you know, stocks are going down. We've seen all of this, right? And the quality factor has underperformed, depending on how you look at it. But if, if you just look at Miski's version, it's underperformed. And the question is, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why? Why? Because relative valuation was expensive. It's expensive. It's expensive. Right. That's what you, you're seeing that in defense. You're seeing that the opposite of it in beta. You're seeing the opposite of it in financials. In some ways, you're seeing the opposite of that in consumer discretionary. You get these weird lopsided things where it looks like the stocks that you wouldn't want to be exposed to have already discounted at least some of the worst part of the news, right? Before the low, or, you know, yeah, because it was the low in relative performance of consumer discretionary, which we haven't gone back to. 
before the low in June, consumer discretionary stocks had only been worse in history, going back to 1962, for that prior six months, 1% of the time. Right? So you're like, well, it's discounting something. The question is how much? And I think that that's some of the reason why, even now we're back at the lows that we saw in June, consumer discretionary stocks have still outperformed. It's because of, oh, I'm going to call them weird signals like that, and just how important relative valuation can be relative to macro conditions. So I'll give you another example in financials. And financials operates much the same way, right? Valuation has mattered historically. We're now cheap on relative forward PE. We're now cheap on relative price to book. We're step functions below what we were in the financial crisis on both valuation measures. That has usually led to forward, forward outperformance in and of itself. But what's really interesting is when you combine it with economic factors. So you say, okay, take out valuation and just say, okay, if we're going to proxy like how bad the economy gets with an unemployment rate, we're going to quartile it out in you know quartiles over the over the coming year and say, okay, we know it's going up. What does it go up to? And you say, okay, milder recessions where it goes up to just and stops at the bottom level breakpoint, which is I think about five and a half percent. Uh, financials actually do okay in that situation, even regardless of valuation, 60% odds. Now those odds go down to you know bad unemployment levels of below 30%, right? So the mildness of recessions, A, matters to financials. But what's really interesting is when you combine it with relative valuation, you actually have above 75% odds, 75% odds, this is a high threshold of financials outperforming in those bottom three quartiles of the unemployment rate, meaning that financials have higher odds of outperforming in you know mild to moderate recessions with all recessions with the exception of the worst one. So I think it shows you just how valuation can operate as a margin of safety, that I think investors don't give it enough credit because it's easier, it's harder to like, go, right? You don't have the historical data, I do. Um, and you can see the news, right? You know the news is getting bad, but you can't measure the relative valuation and the risk associated with it. That's why I'm here, right? In some ways to measure these things. And I find that part fascinating because you see like at the exact time when news is getting worse, the margin of safety of defensive sectors and defensive factors is not very high. So that's why I think from an opportunity perspective, it more lies in risk, it more lies in beta, it lies in consumer discretionary, it lies in financials. So the question coming in here is, is just tacked right on to what you said there. They're actually asking for sort of your top three sectors, top yeah. least favorite sectors. So consumer discretionary, financials, and then healthcare, but I'm going to pick within healthcare biotech. And I think right. that that's the most yeah. interesting area of healthcare to me. And that is like, it's the riskiest area from a beta perspective. But that's what's got valuation support. When I look at relative price to book going back, and I know you shouldn't really go back because biotech is a new industry. You shouldn't go back to 1962. But even regardless of when you go back to, I mean, you're really seeing, you know, very strong book value support. It reminds me very much of banks. Like, yes, is there a risk with funding? Yes, there is. But when you see sort of book value or cash flow, um, for the aggregate sector, there is really strong valuation support. So that gets to that, well, it could get worse with funding, with interest rates, but what proportion of that is priced in? So that's why my top three are really in those riskier areas, because in some ways, I think that they took the, the hit much faster than the rest of the overall sector-based landscape. They have the insulation of valuation, basically. Right. Okay. And right. bottom three? Bottom three. So it's going to have to be defense. So I am downgrading consumer staples. So I'm going to pick consumer staples. 
uh, I'm going to pick utilities, and that has been wrong, but I'm still going to pick utilities. And then I pick real estate for a variety of reasons, one of which we just talked about in terms of housing prices. But I think the other is that, that you know, from a relative valuation perspective, the way I measure um, real estate is quite expensive. Again, U.S. focused, though, this is you're not necessarily looking around the world for comparative still safest place to be with the dollar and so on is U.S. In your no, mind. I know there's a lot of chatter about, well, is Europe finally there in terms of relative valuation? And I, I think the two things give me concern. One, I, I have it not there on a lot of my data. I've seen charts that have it there and I can't quite replicate them. And that always makes me nervous. Um, and two, I don't see enough fear in Europe relative to what I think the potential for recession could be. Um, you should see book valuation spreads be at you know top decile, top quartile levels, and I'm not seeing that yet. So that's another way to measure that. I don't, you're not seeing that in the United States either. But that said, I don't think that we have necessarily the downside risk that Europe has right now from you know a book value and production perspective. Uh, in the U.S. So I think that that's what makes me nervous. And even when I look through history, you know, to really get some solid alpha, and I mean real outperformance, you know, for the vast majority of Europe relative to the U.S., it had to come from much cheaper levels. Right. Okay. Fascinating. So this, again, might be the answer that you've given with valuation and uh, quality. But this question, kind of a rapid fire final question, valuation or pricing power? Which valuation? One? Valuation. I don't think anybody's going to have pricing power right now. Margins are fine. So I'm going with uh, valuation. Fantastic. It is great to see you. Thank you for sharing your incredible brain with us. And we'll see you again soon. Denise Chisholm, thank you for joining us. Always great to be here. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.